proper dress, but anyway, this man makes his way right towards us, comes right up, looks at me and says, are you a Christian? No greeting, which is unusual in that context. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a real Christian? I mean, not just, I can see you're Westerners and you're Europeans, but are you a real Christian? Yes. Tell me, he said, what is at the heart of the Christian faith? And before I had a chance to open my mouth and say anything, he says, no, 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 I don't want all the stuff about Roman Catholics and Protestant and history and this and this and that. I've been there. I've had all those discussions. I'm not interested in that. I want to know what is at the heart of the Christian faith. Well, I know we're encouraged to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have, but we, you know, we weren't exactly ready. Needless to say, Kitty had a long time in the water swimming. Um, but what a question. What a question. What is at the heart? And it seems to me that in our times, there is, there's never been a time where we, where, where, where we need to get to the heart of what our faith is about in relation to Islam and to our witness to Muslim, Muslims. Because as I look out at the evangelical church, I observe a kind of evangelical schizophrenia. There seem to be these, these two approaches. On the one hand, the kind of hawkish, and on the other hand, the kind of dovish, gracish approach. Actually, some of the hawkish approach is appropriate, I believe, biblically, but it's more adversarial. The problem is if you go too far in that direction, you start to build the kind of straw man of Islam. And with that comes fear, and then you end up in xenophobia. And that's clearly totally inappropriate. On the other hand, the continuity approach that's emphasizing what's similar is necessary and right and I believe biblically warranted. But of course, if you go too far in that direction, you start to avoid the points of conflict. And then if you go even further, it ends up being a kind of syncretism. So the question is, whose voice are we going to listen to in the context of our witness to Islam? And to Muslims. And the Transfiguration passage is a kind of hidden treasure at the heart of the Bible and at the heart of Luke's gospel. It's hidden because, to be honest, we don't hear it preached very often. We had a sermon from Ida about three and a half years ago. And I was thinking not, of not choosing this passage because of that. But it's so important that I've come back to it. And there are three things, I think, that we see in this passage we see the heart of God's story. We see the heart of Jesus' identity. And I believe we also see the heart of our mission and how it should be lived out. So let's take those in turn. In many ways, this story is a kind of ripping open of the whole narrative of the Bible. If you think right back to Genesis chapter 3 and the, the reference to, to the, 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 the seed who would crush Satan's head, and you swing right through to Revelation, which if you're coming to the evening services, you'll be hearing, hearing about. And you think about the lamb on the throne. The story of the, of the transfiguration rips open the identity of Christ. And actually, it's right at the heart of Luke's gospel. It's in the, in the middle third, at the beginning of the middle third of his gospel. But I want us to get even closer and look at the passage itself throughout chapter 9. 
And in it, we're going to see a kind of pattern. And those of you who came to Ida's workshop yesterday were hearing about this. Biblical theologians call this a chiasm. Right, I'm just going to call it a chiastic burger. All right? Just so you have this image of the way in which the writers are starting with things on the outside, like the bread and the bun, and then working in and eventually getting to the meat of what's at the, the heart of it. You see these structures all over the place. Have a look at the beginning of chapter uh, 9 and then the very beginning of chapter 10. You've got this idea of mission and the disciples being sent out. The 12 at the beginning of chapter 9 and then at the beginning of chapter 10, the 72. So that's, if you like, on the outside. And then you move in and you have this declaration that, that I'm glad Tom started the passage from that bit uh, where Peter declares the identity of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah. And then on the other side of the passage, you've got this question about who is the greatest and an exploration of well, what should the identity of the disciples be in relation to Jesus. And then as you get closer, you have this prediction of the death of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 21 to 27, and then chapter 9, verses 43 to 45. And so as, as Tom rightly uh, 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 alerted us by starting the reading at verse 27, when our passage starts, verse 28, eight days earlier with, uh, with this, this, this reference to about eight days earlier, after Jesus had said this, what is it that Jesus said? Well, he predicted his death. Three things. He said that the Messiah is going to suffer, that the disciples must be prepared to share in his sufferings, and that his and their sufferings are set against the backdrop of glory. And so at the heart of chapter 9 is this revelation of who Jesus is. So let's move on and look at that. And I want us to, to, to do that by, by thinking about potent images that Luke uses, powerful prophets that he talks about in this encounter, and provocative words. Let's take those in turn. Firstly, if you look at verse 28, in the second part, we have this reference to mountains. Uh, this transfiguration account is probably uh, on Mount Hermon. That's to the north of Caesarea. And of course, we might not be quite so sensitive to this, but the first readers and the first hearers of this message would have understood the importance of mountains. Mountains in the Bible are where we see God. <coughs> Where his, dis, where his holiness and his power is, is displayed. Think of Mount Horeb and the burning bush, where he reveals his standards. Think of Mount Sinai and Moses receiving the law, where he brings judgment. Think of Mount Carmel and Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and where he establishes and confirms, most importantly, in the whole biblical storyline, his covenant love for his people. You see that in Mount Nebo with Noah then through Sinai, and then eventually to Gethsemane. So mountains. Secondly, light, verse 29. The flash of lightning reminds us of the presence and the power of God. We are in the presence of Almighty God in this passage. From the very first words at the start of Genesis 1 and verse 3, let there be light, through to Ezekiel's vision of God, or Paul on the road to Damascus, always it's accompanied by light. And then, of course, in Revelation again, we have from the throne coming flashes of light. So light. Thirdly, the image of the Exodus. Notice that this is the subject of the conversation between Jesus and Elijah uh, and Moses. His departure is what the NIV here says. 
The Greek word, actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word for exodus. So in the Greek, it's the same as the word exodus. So there is no mistaking that this is an allusion to the exodus, God's deliverance of the Israelites. But this is a new exodus, setting people free from a greater bondage. And then the final image there of clouds, verse 34. See that. The enveloping cloud signals God's presence. And again, if we think about the narrative, we think of the Israelites leaving Egypt and the cloud that accompanied them. Or perhaps you'll remember the image picked up in Daniel's vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. He says, In my vision, at night, I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So there you are at the top of this mountain. And amidst the light and the clouds, Jesus meets two very important figures in the Bible story of salvation. Verse 30, let's look at it. He appears with Moses and Elijah. Why are these characters so important? Well, Moses, of course, was the greatest lawgiver. Luke's readers would not have missed the parallels with Moses' face being transfigured as he came down from Sinai. They would have had that in their minds after receiving the law. In the law, of course, God established a right means of sacrifice as a way of sustaining his relationship with his people, his people who were infected by sin. But of course, we know the story, don't we? The people keep on sinning. Well, if Moses is the great lawgiver, then Elijah is the great law enforcer. He is a model of faithfulness and zeal for God in the face of Baal worship at that time. And the encounter at Mount Carmel is a kind of key place where, where we see God's people are called to, to be faithful in the, context, in the context of false worship and rampant sin. But here's the thing. Karma also reminds us that the people kept on sinning. And that the zeal for God can quickly become an unholy zeal. Let me illustrate that by reading from Ida's book, which if you haven't heard already, um, I commend to you highly. Um, this is what uh, Ida wrote about an experience when she was thinking about this encounter and the concept of zeal. I'm so glad that I've put so much effort into studying Elijah. My journey towards this book on thinking biblically about Islam began with Elijah, sitting in northern Nigeria. As the journey draws to its close, I'm thinking about Elijah again. The complex world of religion, power, of violence and corruption, and of repentance and hope that he encountered is so relevant to my students here. The student's big concern is the dangerous mix of religion, power, and violence that is represented in Boko Haram, which is destroying the lives and livelihoods of many Christians and also many Muslims who dare to oppose it. He goes on. The students thought about the Christian response to Boko Haram and to other acts of violence that they have been that they have seen between Muslims and Christians. The violence has led to Muslims and Christian communities separating and sometimes to Christians attacking Muslims. 
the acute question raised by the Carmel confrontation for the students is this, was Elijah right to kill the prophets of Baal? The text does not say that God told them to do so, they observe, but God did judge people by putting them to death in the Old Testament. I point out, Ida writes, that killing the idolaters did not work. Israel was still idolatrous, and the king and queen did not repent at all. They just persecuted Elijah. One student went on and said this, we learn that Elijah made a terrible mistake. Boko Haram cannot convince people of its brand of Islam by killing its enemies. People will just see how terrible they are. The state and Christians are wrong if they think they can solve any problems by killing Boko Haram. You cannot kill an ideology by killing people. But what is the alternative? That's the key question. How can we respond in Jesus' way? Now, I want to clarify here very carefully. I'm not suggesting that the student was right in saying that Elijah shouldn't have, have, have killed them. That's something that we can't say. The text doesn't say that. But the passage in front of us today may give us an indication of the dangers of unholy seal. Because if you look forward to chapter 9 of Luke and verses 54 and 55, you see the disciples following Jesus. They go in uh, to an, a Samaritan area. The messengers go ahead, but the people reject the messages, the, the message of the gospel. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And you'll see there's a note in your Bibles that will say, just like Elijah did. So it's a reference to the same story. What does Jesus do? Jesus turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. But the main point to, to realize in, in, in this is that the law and the prophets are not enough. In verse 36, Moses and Elijah fade away and Jesus is left standing on the mount with his disciples. And then you have these incredible words. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And these are very provocative words. The climax of, 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 uh, of the passage in verse 35 couldn't be clearer. Having depicted and evoked the glory of the law and of prophetic zeal, Luke is saying, Jesus is greater. And what you have in verse 34 and 35 is a kind of revelation of the triune nature of God. Look at it. Verse 34, you've got the presence of the cloud, the spirit of God. Verse 35, you've got the voice of the Father. And then verses 34 to 36 is all about the glory of the Son. And this revelation of the sonship of Jesus is, is a very problematic thing when we come to witness with Muslims. I want to highlight three things this morning, three ways in which it's problematic. Firstly, it's problematic because of the problem of communication and language. Muslims, when you say son of God, assume that you mean walid. That's an Arabic word that means you're, you're literally your son. Nate is my wuld. And that implies that God had sex with Mary, which is, of course, a shocking idea. But in Arabic, there are two words for son. There is the word walid, but there's also the word ibn. And that word can mean literally your son, but it can also be something metaphorical. For example, if I said that um, Josh was the ibn al-Hulma, that means he's the son of the neighborhood. It means he's one of us. He belongs to us. 
So it's used often in that metaphorical way. And in the Quran, most of the refutation, most of the, most of the arguments against the idea of sun are actually arguing against this idea of wulad. So a simple understanding of the meaning of these words could really help. And practically, I'd say to you, when you're in conversation with Muslims, just because you use the same words doesn't mean you're talking about the same thing. So try to move from words to meaning. I'll come back to that in a moment. Because the secondly, it's not just about a problem of language and metaphors. The second problem with Son of God is actually linked with the nature of God. The idea of an eternal Son and a Spirit coexisting with God implies that God is three for Muslims. And this is what the Quran critiques in Christianity. It's, it's actually a forbidden thought in Islam. And so what I've observed happening, and, and this has happened so many times in, in relationship with, with Muslim friends, is that you, what you get into is a kind of competition. All right? Imagine this image. Have this image in your mind of, of two works of art. Okay? Two tableaus. All right? On the one hand, you've got the, 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 the doctrine of the unity of God. That, this is, it's like a tableau, a work of art. And Muslims look at it and go, this is so much more consistent, so much more logical, so much more beautiful. One is one. Forget the silly Trinity stuff and you've got all these analogies about H2O and water and solid and gas. Look, one is one and three is three and this makes much more sense. It's much more exalted. And then on the other hand, you've got Christians going, no, 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 that's not it. Unity is not simplistic. It's not, it's not mathematical only. Unity is complex. And so you have a kind of competition. And actually, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that what we need to do is not think of doctrine simply like a tableau that we hide behind, but actually see it more like a window that we try and travel through onto the landscape that it's trying to describe. That, that approach might get us somewhere. And it's an approach that was used by some of the early Christians, some of the early Arab Christians. I'll mention somebody who, if you're interested, I can tell you where to find out more about him. Uh, John of Damascus a monk in the 8th century. It was his grandfather who handed over the keys of Damascus to the first Muslim rulers um, of that region. And he, he challenged Muslims by saying, okay, you're saying there's no trinity, fine. There's a, there's a problem with the word trinity. But let's think about the doctrine of Allah. That's one God. Then you've got the Quran. That's an eternal word, uncreated. So you've got a word. And then you've got the Spirit of God who's also uncreated. So is that one or is that three? And so he pushed, pushed back, not just to provoke them, but to, to try and help them understand. And my challenge to you is that often we accept sound doctrine. All right? We know about the creeds and we, and we stand by them. But I challenge you to actually reflect, meditate on them so that you can communicate them more faithfully in the dynamic of your relationship with Muslims. Moving on, I think the problem, thirdly, is even more deeper than just language or just the nature of, of God. I think it in, in specifically, it's a problem that's related to relationship at the heart of God. Relationship, you see, for Muslims implies association. If I have a relationship with God, I'm associated to him, and that is forbidden. And yet, here's the thing, paradoxically, this is exactly the kind of day-to-day -day existential need that most Muslims have. How do you bridge this idea of a, an almighty, 
great God, Allahu Akbar, which is the, the, the great statement, with the experience of daily life, daily struggles, pain, injustice. How are we going to bridge that? And it's in many ways this gap between this great, high, powerful God and the day-to-day problems that leads many Muslims to a kind of folk Islam because they need a mediator. But if we're honest with ourselves this morning, this isn't just a Muslim problem. It's the same reason why, uh, uh, why saint worship developed or, or, or Mariology is a doctrine in, in the Roman Catholic tradition. But let's not point the fingers at, at Roman Catholics. I'd suggest that it's also the same for many of us. The Bible says that, that every one of us was made for a relationship with God. And in the words of St. Augustine, our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him. And here's the thing. All of us fill that aching gap with a number of different things. They might be good things or they might be bad things. But they end up acting as a substitute for our fellowship with the Lord himself. So how will Muslims come to see the glory of God in the face of Christ? Well, language is definitely important and we need to do our homework. Apologetics is important. Exploring misunderstandings, all those things are important. But fundamentally, fundamentally, Muslims will come to see the glory of Christ when they encounter him by the power of his spirit. And the transfiguration confronts us with the heart of the Bible's answer to who God is, to how he addresses mankind's fundamental problem. And this is really different to how Islam addresses it. And with permission and kind of shamelessly, I have asked Ida about this. I want to use a slide that Ida used um, about three or or four years ago when she uh, was preaching from the same passage. What is it we see in this passage? We see God's presence. We see his holiness. We see him speaking. And you have behind this the idea of the, the covenantal promises. How is that different to how Muslims understand the presence of God? Let's go through these. For presence... Muslims emphasize greatness. For holiness, they will emphasize justice. For God speaking, they will emphasize the Quran as the, as the final statement. And for God's promises, well, those are not uh, an important concept, covenantal promises in Islam. The important concept in Islam is guidance. And so, what happens is really that the, the, the transfiguration reveals um, how uh, Islam opposes some of the, the things at the very heart of the Christian faith. Let's go through these. If, if you just move through them quickly, Kitty. Um, in the story, we have Moses and Elijah. What happens, as we saw in the account, is that Jesus is exalted and Moses and Elijah, if we go through them quite, quite quickly, um, Moses and Elijah recede into the background and Jesus is exalted. And then if we move on, what happens in Islam is the opposite. The prophetic tradition and the law are enlarged. So Moses and Elijah get bigger and Jesus is minimized. And carry on. And the prophetic tradition and the law are summarized finally in the person of Muhammad. So how will Muslims come to see the glory of Christ? Only in relationship. And the place where they will see that most 
is in relationship with Christians who have been in the presence of God. Let me give you a a very quick illustration that I heard about recently. This is a a Syrian woman who had made the treacherous journey to Britain and arrived in Calais. And she was met by a Christian in Calais. And the very first thing she said to this lady was, I want to meet Jesus. And this woman who was going down there to help with clothes and food and practical stuff was like, what? You know, why are you asking me this? I mean, she was delighted on one level, but... And, she, and the lady said to her, it's very simple. I've been through the hardest three months of my life. And at every point on this journey, I have been met by people who have loved me and cared for me, who've given me clothes, who've given me comfort, and they've done it in the name of Jesus. So I want to meet this Jesus. As you came in this morning, uh, you heard the voice of, of, of a, a friend of mine called Abdul Qadr singing the Sermon on the Mount in a kind of traditional style. I was corresponding with him, as I do often, and asking about this passage. And this is what he said about the transfiguration. This is Abdul Qadr. He says, this passage is powerful indeed. I love how important it is for us to spend time with God and to seek his face and to look for his glory. In a Muslim context, I believe without a close relationship with God, people who see us from the outside will never stay, even if they come at first, because they're interested. It's all about reflecting the image of God. We can only shine if we have the light inside. God's presence resides where he lives, and that is amongst his people, as they encounter him and are transformed by him and worship him. And there is no faithful or fruitful mission in the way of Christ without worship in the presence and the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so my question to us this morning at Morden Road is, how seriously do we take our desire for the presence of God? Let's think about our prayer meetings. Let's think about when we meet even just together with people. Do we turn to him? Do we seek his presence? Are we hungry for that? Think about what we learned from from the Lord's Prayer. And it begins, hallowed be your name. It's true. We're not called to remain on the mountaintop. All right? Like like Peter in verse 33 of our passage, um, who tries to preserve the moment of glory. And by the way, that's what I think is going on in that passage. You know, the text says to us, he didn't know what he was talking about. Shall I make a, a shelter for Elijah and Moses? It was just like he'd seen this great, glorious presence of God and, and just, you know, babble was coming out. But I think in fairness to him, what he was doing was trying to take hold of that moment and enshrine it. And that's very normal. Throughout human history, that's what people do in all faiths, to try and preserve, this is where I met God, this is where I had this experience. And you see that, obviously, in the Old Testament account. But they had to come down from the mountaintop. But before I move on to what happens when they come down from the mountaintop, let me say the mountaintop matters. Regularly, daily, we need to spend time in the presence of the glory of the risen Christ and behold him. We cannot, we cannot live out our mission without that experience of the presence of God. So let's see what happens when they come down from the mountain. 
The words that they hear are, this is my son, followed by, listen to him, followed by them following Jesus into uh, his mission. His mission done in his way. But I want to encourage you this morning that the transformation that happens to the disciples is far, far from instant. Look at verse 37, right after this passage. The very next day, the disciples are unable to drive out the evil spirit. And then a bit further on in verses 46 and 47, they start to argue and quibble about who the greatest is. Haven't we done that repeatedly throughout church history? Isn't that the sad story of the church? Verse 52 and 54, as I said earlier, they suggest bringing down fire on the Samaritans. Or or think just about Peter for a moment. He just didn't get it. He didn't understand what was going on at that moment. He knew he was in the presence of glory, but he didn't get it. If we don't get it, if we're fearful, if we cock it up, God knows that. Transformation is not immediate. Look, look at what Peter says in 1 Peter um, and in his letter, in his pastoral letter. 1 Peter 1 verse 16. He's talking, I think, absolutely about this event. This is what he says in his letter. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ, in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So this is a good reminder for us that transformation can be gradual. And I hope it's an encouragement for those of you who are fearful about stepping out. Like the disciples, if we think of, uh, of the account in John's gospel, when they were huddled in that room. I wonder what sort of room you're huddled in with fear of stepping out. If you are, hear those words of Jesus. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Peace be with you. My presence my holiness, my presence, my holiness, my word and my covenantal promise are with you. Now, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Our dwelling in the presence, our exaltation of the glory of Christ impacts our mission. This is true for the church's mission, of course, to all people everywhere. But I want to say this morning that it's especially true and important for our response to Islam and our mission to Muslims. The late uh, bishop, theologian, and missionary, Kenneth Cragg, uh, missionary to Muslims, Kenneth Cragg, said something quite audacious. And I want you to listen to it carefully, because I think it's very important we listen to this. He said the very inception, the very existence of Islam could be regarded as a failure of the Christian church. The very inception or existence of Islam could be regarded as a failure of the Christian church. A failure in what? In love in purity and in fervor, a failure to demonstrate the gospel. If you know your church history, you'll know that Islam grew in a context with all sorts of schisms, all sorts of problems, battling to understand the nature of Christ, the nature of God, etc. So the transfiguration is supposed to lead to transformation, lead to mission that itself, the mission that brings that kind of transformation can only occur by those of us who've been transformed. And if we go back to the chiastic Berg image I, I shared at the beginning, 
we can see what Luke has been driving us to see, that an encounter with the glory of Jesus, seen through the lens of the cross, will shape not just our understanding of who Jesus is, a kind of doctrinal thing, but who we are in him and and what his mission is through us. So to end, what does this actually mean for us at MRC? Do you not think that we're living today in unprecedented times, unprecedented times of opportunity to share the gospel with Muslims? Think about the refugee crisis. Think about the changes in our nation. Let me briefly read you this uh, article that Tom Etock Taylor sent a number of us in July. It's in The Guardian. It's from July. And it's entitled, This is what I'm meant to be doing. The vicar welcoming Muslims to church. I'll just read you a a, a few lines from it. The congregation of St. Mark's Church on Stoke-on-Trent are in tears. The old walls are amplifying a booming version of the traditional Christian hymn, Thanks to God, as an hour-long baptism ceremony draws to a close. It's a powerful, emotive rendition, yes, but the tears are for something else. This particular voice is the Iranian Muslim Amir Naujanvi, singing in Farsi who is one of 16 asylum seekers converting to Christianity on a Saturday afternoon. The white faces who used to make up the congregation of this tiny church in a deprived area of Stoke have been replaced by an eclectic mix of Iranians, Syrians, Iraqis, Bangladeshis, and Eritreans, who are all either looking for salvation in another religion or simply seeking charity. In just three years, the Reverend Sally Smith has presided over this total transformation of St. Mark's from a middle-class church to something resembling a refugee processing center. It is far from an isolated case, writes this journalist. In fact, Smith's story is a microcosm of what is happening across churches in Europe, where a growing number of Muslim refugees are converting to Christianity. Are we ready for that kind of transformation at MRC? If not, why not? If so, how would this happen? God has, of course, given us opportunities, and I'm, I'm delighted to be in this church. Opportunities to welcome Syrian families into our homes, which some of us have done. Opportunities to volunteer with local charities or work for them, which a number of us have done. Opportunities for offering hospitality. Are there other ways? That's my question to you, and, and can any one of us here today say that this doesn't affect us? I would challenge you if you thought it didn't affect you in some way. So to to close, our purpose in mission is not to demonstrate the superiority of Christianity, of our doctrines, or anything else over Islam. Our mission is to prepare Muslims to receive Jesus. Yesterday at the workshop, Ida used this definition. She said, this is how I understand evangelism. It's preparing people to encounter the presence of God. God's mission is about God coming in Christ and our being sent is intimately linked to God's desire to live amongst us as we encounter him in his glory and we worship him. So as you go from this place today, this morning, into a a, a cacophony of, of noise and competing voices related to Islam, do not fear. Come to the risen Jesus. Hear and obey the voice of the Father saying, listen, to him. Let's pray.
We thank you, Father God, for the revelation, the glory, your glory in the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the word of God, that we can come and read and encounter the risen Lord Jesus. And my prayer is for each one of us that we would meet you, that we would know your presence, that we would hunger for your presence. And Lord, that you would drive out any fear from us, no matter what level we interact with Muslims, our neighbours, our colleagues, whoever it may be, that we would have a hunger to reveal your glory. Help us in this, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.